and welcome to The Lobster Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan. This is a bonus track from our latest podcast on the case against the case against lockdown. This is the full interview that I did with Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick, who is a GP working in North London and also the author of The Tyranny of Health, Doctors and the Regulation of Lifestyle, which was published in 2000. If you skip back a track to the case against the case against lockdown, you'll hear me and Fallon talk to Tom Chivers and Dr. Michael about all things related to the lockdown over the last year. And if you head to lobsterfilms.co.uk, you can check out our full roster of podcasts on the lockdown, as well as our political films on things like feminism and Brexit. So, Michael, we had a podcast, the Lobster podcast, with Sinitra Gupta and Carol Sakura back in October. And back then, life was very different to what it is now. I mean, we didn't know about the new variant and things have certainly changed. At that time, um, there were talks of a second peak and the tier system was just about coming in. But we'd gone through this period in the summer of having pretty much little to no restrictions after the lockdown in March. One of their arguments was this idea of the, the Great Barrington Declaration, which was that at that time, as they saw it, you could, instead of having a second national lockdown, or even actually instead of having a first national lockdown, as they argued, that you could use society's resources to protect the elderly who are most at risk or the medically vulnerable and allow the rest of society to be open and essentially catch the virus and develop herd immunity. You wrote a blog um, and several pieces and have argued in different places that there were flaws in that argument. Why didn't you agree with the idea behind the Great Barrington Declaration? There are a number of issues with the Great Barrington Declaration. The main signatories of it were well-regarded academic epidemiologists, of which I am not. I am a jobbing GP. So I've no academic expertise in this area at all. I've followed these controversies for some years and I've worked as a GP in relation to COVID. It wasn't that they failed to convince me. It was that they failed to convince the vast majority of their scientific peers in the validity of the position that they put forward on a number of particular issues. And this was published in the medical journals in a wide number of different platforms, the British Medical Journal, the Lancet, uh, various uh, overseas. And the, the position put forward by the people that I regard as authoritative experts in this field was that the the um, the claim that it was a viable proposition to isolate a small proportion or relatively... Well, one of the things was they never specified what proportion of the population would need to be uh, the, the target of this focused protection or targeted protection. But various estimates come up to 20-30% of the, of the population, how that could be achieved. Because the simple practicality is, as you get older and more infirm, you require more social contacts with younger people, not less, because you require people, often people looking after you in various ways according to your level of functioning yourself. But the older and more infirm you get, the more vulnerable you get to infectious disease, the more contacts you have. Therefore, the, the practicalities of isolating that population from an infectious disease which is highly transmissible and highly lethal, particularly in that age group, were regarded by the vast majority of experts in the field as completely impracticable. And what was striking about the Gate Barrington proponents is they never answered these criticisms and they never came out with a practical proposal of how this could be achieved. I, I'm kind of conscious of the fact that throughout a lot of this, I'm going to be putting forward lockdown sceptical arguments for you to see what you think about them. But one of the things that people who were critical of the lockdown lockdowns said or invoked was this idea of risk and individual risk there was arguments being made 
by young and old, actually, that I understand that there is a risk to this disease. And you've just mentioned things like long COVID. And I want to ask you about that in a bit, but that there is even risk of death. But I don't want to sacrifice my ability to live and socialize. I'm willing to take the risk, in other words. And the thing that frustrated me was that rather than having a kind of reasonable discussion about risk and what risks would be acceptable and what level of death would be acceptable, you know, all these kind of things, there seemed to be two extremes, which on the one hand, you had people who were in an alarm alarmist way pro-lockdown as in we're kind of all going to die the sky is falling on you know on top of us and so we have to you know lock down almost indefinitely and then on the kind of extreme of the lockdown skeptic side you had I suppose I want to say actually quite infantile idea of what risk means and what individual risk means and how it plays out in a collective unlike uh, bungee jumping or um, jumping out of a plane or smoking two packets of fags that your decision to take an individual risk has a role in the collective approach to risk. The question I put to you is how do you deal with risk in this? Because inevitably there will come a point at which you do accept or we do as a society accept a certain level of risk or harm in order to counteract the risks and harm that lockdown have been put down. What is your approach to the idea of balancing risks in this? Is it just too soon to tell because we're still in the eye of the storm? Do we have to kind of wait and see it play out? One of the issues here is that there is a problem in relation to a, the, a novel infectious disease. There's a problem of urgency. So this infectious disease emerged in the end of last year, uh, end of December in China and rapidly spread around the world. And this, this is a novel disease to which the community of the world had no previous immunity. It was clear at a very early stage that two important things about it. One is it is relatively highly transmissible, three times more transmissible than flu is. That was the R, R number. Each person tended to infect three other people. And secondly, that it was relatively highly lethal, about 10 times as lethal as flu. The earlier fatality rates were slightly higher than that because there wasn't clear how widely disseminated the infection was in the community. But it's a relatively high rate of mortality. Now, if you've got a disease like that coming suddenly, People are going to die, and it's very substantial, as was demonstrated. People died in, in many thousands in, in the month of April in this country to an unprecedented degree. So it was incumbent upon the government to take drastic action in order to forestall that death rate. Now, there is no known treatment for this disease. The only measures that can deal with it are some form of restriction on individual liberties, quarantine, social distancing, you know the list. There's nothing else you can do. So the point is that anything you do is going to have is going to be restrictive. It has going to have adverse consequences on individual freedom. It's going to have adverse consequences for social life. It's going to disrupt education. It's going to disrupt the economy. It's going to disrupt society. Those are inescapable consequences of any measure of that sort. But it seems to me that, and I think most people accept this argument, that if faced with a disease which is going to kill tens of thousands of people in a very short period of time, which it did, has done, it is legitimate to take drastic action in order to try and reduce that mortality. Now, any individual in that situation can say to them, well, the risk to me is not very great, but it isn't only about me. It is about, and as one of the issues of COVID is that, uh, as well known, it can be transmitted by people who have either no symptoms or very low level of symptoms, and even before they develop symptoms, that creates a very particular problem about controlling its spread. And it doesn't mean to say that it is necessary to have constraints on everybody's liberties in order to protect a small proportion of people who are likely to be particularly vulnerable and suffer the very serious consequences from it. So it seems to me that you have to accept in that situation in society. It's not just it can be left to your individual judgment. It's it's uh, anybody resistant to that idea of having their liberties curtailed in that way. But 
there's no other no other response to it. Therefore, it's of great importance that those measures are subject to a high level of democratic control and accountability. Now, that's another whole issue, to what extent that did prevail. There is no doubt problems about the way in which this society is governed democratically in relation to all sorts of things and how people participate and share in the decisions about them. Restraints on civil liberties and economic activities and social activities of COVID made it particularly that those deficits particularly uh, important and need to be challenged. But it doesn't seem to me to be helpful to deny that it was necessary to have such constraints. There's no other alternative to that in that sort of situation. Sticking on the idea of individual freedom and civil liberties, one thing that I'm a bit worried about is, and uh, and I'm, I have noticed this among lots of people who are sceptical of the lockdown or critical of the lockdown, who in a different political context, say like in 2019, I would have been with them all the way. Ideas about resisting the notion of Tina, there is no alternative to any given situation, resisting the idea of crackdowns on civil liberties, promoting the idea that individuals can be trusted to make rational, reasonable decisions. I mean, we've just had four years of the playing out of the fallout of the Brexit referendum, which has sort of brought all those political questions to the fore. And then you have this pandemic happened, which you have described as, you know, this novel virus, which is, as Ernstan, you're saying, it's pretty much like nothing we've ever seen before and you can't really predict it. And it's a bit like, uh, the way I've tried to understand it is, is it a bit like a kind of meteor hitting the planet and you kind of have to just deal with the immediacy of it first before understanding the longer term effects of it. And all those issues of individual freedom and the importance of individual freedom, which you might have argued for previously, I guess the way I put it is I'm slightly worried about a kind of hyper-individualism that's that's been sort of flourishing among some people who are skeptical of the lockdown not just the sense that we've just been talking about about me myself and I in terms of risk but also you know this tension of what is the truth of how individuals react to this virus and how far you can trust individuals because if we're saying that this is the challenge I suppose if we're saying that you need a government to crack down or take drastic measures or however we want to phrase it and limit people's ability to make decisions about their lives is that not then suggesting that presented with the evidence or presented with reasonable arguments that you couldn't trust people to make decisions themselves in the specifics of the pandemic what i'm saying is did we need to make all these things illegal did we need to do things from the extreme of putting more police out on the streets you know in in spring of last year shouting at people to go home to emergency powers that are once they're on the books very difficult to get off the books or could we have done this via I suppose what lockdown skeptic says is could we have done this via rational argument with people and trusted them to make sensible decisions? What is what what view of the public is coming out of this? This is something that I'm sort of nervous about. Moving forward, what view of publics and how to manage publics comes out? Well, you see, you can't say take for one example, you quarantine, you can't close a border and curtail flights and travelling without infringing on people's liberties. And you that has to be a, a, a regulation which is coercive on individual freedom you know you, you can't invite people for a discussion about whether the, the the border should be closed or not that is a decision that government has to take and it has to take following discussion indeed and it should be monitored carefully and the duration of any it's a coercive measure however you look at it there's no gainsaying the fact that it's a restriction on individual liberty and that applies across the board with this and i i completely agree that uh, many of the restrictions have been imposed in an arbitrary and oppressive way you know, stopping people from going for a walk with their dog in the country 
and the failure to distinguish between indoor and outdoor spaces in terms of what is the significant risk of transmission attempts to gain people's consent rather than immediately resorting to coercion. There's room for discussion in all those areas, but there's no escaping the fact that there is going to be some degree of coercion involved in them, and that is inescapable. And it's in the whole history of infectious diseases, this has, has always been the case, and the imposition of risk quarantines has always provoked uh, resistance and it has always uh, as this one has borne down most heavily on the poorest people because they're the people who have most difficulties in adjusting their lives to these sort of constraints so it's hence all the more important that there are democratic controls and restrictions and appropriate compensation mechanisms introduced and proper financing of of alternatives and furlough schemes and all the rest of it. All these things are very important, but it's no good saying, you know, I'm going to assert my rights to individual freedom in relation to the onset of a highly infectious viral pneumonia. And people understand that. Hence the high level of consent that people have given to significant restrictions on their liberty. People quite understand the, the nature of the problem. There's been an argument people have been intimidated and scared and terrified and terrorised into all these things. I don't think so. People looked at the, the television images, above all, I think, from Bergamo and northern Italy, rather than Wuhan seems like a very long way away. Northern Italy is a very familiar cultural uh, uh, place. It's a, uh, lots of people visited there. It's the same sort of country as ours. And you see the terrible situation of people queuing up in hospital corridors. People saw that and they thought drastic measures are justified and I will conform with them, which I have overwhelmingly done. You know, there's also an argument that the government resorted to fearsome scaremonger at an early stage. But there's no relation to the reality of what happened. You know, what what actually happened was, and this is a feature of the responses of the government both in Britain and in the United States, was in the initial stages to say, calm down, everything's under control, we've got the world-beating scientists, we're world-beating health care systems, uh, everything is under control, the risk is relatively low, um, these things happen over in China, but we'll, uh, we, we've got measures in place to deal with it. Yeah, causing a panic was, was absolutely the last thing that people, and, uh, people have... And indeed, Boris Johnson has been fiercely criticised ever since for delaying and prevaricating about introducing the first lockdown and indeed the second lockdown, uh, because it, clearly his instincts in response are libertarian rather than authoritarian. The dominant criticism from the public health world has been that a failure to Im introduce restrictive mechanisms, which would have been supported by the population at an early stage, would have saved a very large number of lives. And actually, it is very striking that when the government did move to lockdown, people had already themselves started to not go into work, work from home, not travelling on public transport, not sending their kids to school, you know, a week before the government actually introduced those as a blanket restriction. So in a sense, people took the decision themselves, I would say quite sensibly in relation to the reality that they saw unfolding in front of them. The government then could certainly have explained things a lot better about the practicality of particular sorts of measures. And of course, you can argue backwards and forwards and it's a very complicated argument about whether the school should open what level of restriction is appropriate for the schools what whether it's primary schools secondary schools university all these issues are very important areas for discussion and there's great controversy but you don't advance those discussions by trying to deny that there's a very serious problem out there or trying to minimize the scale of the problem which i feel many of the critics have done consistently through the same no this this uh, which is actually the they're taking their lead in a sense from Boris and Trump. No, this is a relatively minor virus. It's only like seasonal flu. I'm going around shaking hands with people. I never wear a mask. I'm very libertarian and individualistic. That's uh, not a sensible way of approaching it.
Well, uh, Boris, I wanted to ask you about the way in which the government's handled this, um, because speak to one crowd and Boris Johnson is to be criticised and slammed because he didn't lock down quick enough, he didn't put in enough restrictions, He's not. he's been too libertarian to another crowd and he's been too restrictive and you know there people use the term police state and people talk about things being authoritarian i mean putting aside the sort of more lunatic conspiracy theories about this all being a ploy for the tories to institute greater control over people you can kind of say there's a general sense from both sides of the political divide labor more being in favor of prior restrictions and most of the people who are anti-lockdown being more conservative saying that the government got it wrong do you think the government has got it wrong do you th- if if you kind of had the ear of um boris johnson would you have done things differently would you have locked down quicker would you have locked down longer do you think in general we sort of handled it as it's come and and been as responsive as we could be or or have there been mistakes along the way well, I think unquestionably there have been mistakes and the government obviously was in a very, very difficult position. It's in a disease threat of a qualitatively different order from anything previously experienced. And it's true to say, and many of the public health people have said this, that it's not that it was anticipated. There have been pandemic contingency planning has been going on for some time. And the risk of a viral disease jumping from the animal world into the human world and then spreading very widely in a highly globalised world economy and transport system has been recognised. And hence... I think it's legitimate to say that the immediate response of the government was behind the curve and they were slow to, there was problems about the information that was coming out of China without doubt and the World Health Organization was complicit with the poor uh, emergence of data from China. So that created very great difficulties for responding at an early stage because it's very clear that by the time the public health people really appreciated the scale of the problem in Britain, there were multiple introductions of the virus. Dissemination was taking place on the community level mainly from Central Europe, from the skiing holiday season. But by the time they realised, oh, it's, it's here on that schedule, it already overwhelmed the rather primitive state of the public health testing and tracking and tracing system. And that meant that from the outset, they were running to catch up. I think that was unquestionably a major failing. The public health system, which is a matter of great grievance in the medical world, had been allowed to stagnate, subject to a lot of resource problems and disorganisation of the various reorganisations, the relationship with the health and local government. All those issues, no doubt, created a problem in the in the proper response. And then the government's reliance on various mechanisms for dealing with it through public-private partnerships has turned out to be not at all effective. The procurement of PPE, the organisation of testing, all these things have, have been unsatisfactory. At a time when it had other, you know, it was negotiating the whole Brexit fallout, this suddenly fell on it. The government's response was slow and indecisive. And uh, Boris Johnson's personal style of, of bombast and flippancy was particularly inappropriate to this. And of course, personified by the fact of him getting quite seriously ill with the disease himself. Um, so, you know, that in a way symbolised the incompetence and inadequacy of the government response from the beginning. I've been running to catch up ever since and constantly torn. In some respects, understandably, people say, oh, you know, the government's concern was just to keep the economy going and rather than the health. But the economy is about health. You know, if the economy isn't kept going and the instinct to try and reopen the economy was an entirely understandable one because it, people's livelihoods are been very gravely affected by it. And it, undoubtedly, the lockdown sceptics legitimately drew attention to the scale of these collat- the collateral damage, which was profound, and the disruptive effects on education and society and everything else. The old people's homes is another great failure of the government. But of course, 
as many people point out, it wasn't that wasn't peculiar to Britain either. You know, there's similar problems that existed pretty well throughout the Western world. There's a historic problem of the inadequacy of social care system in terms of particularly looking after elderly people and the particular structure of those and the reliance on agency staff and mobile, poorly paid um, staff in those situations. And no doubt that was a major factor because it's fairly clear in terms of the, particularly the impact of the first wave, the, the, the residential care was a big area of it. The hospitals was another big area of it. So problems of, which are not new before COVID, which are recognised in the past, you know, because the NHS collapses every winter under winter pressures because of the, the inadequate resourcing and structure of the, the bureaucratic organisation of it. That was a factor in the whole thing too. And the particular high mortality rate in hospitals and in old people's homes was an important feature of the British experience of COVID and will be the subject of endless subsequent inquiries. But there were no doubt important failures of government policy and public health organisation at every level. Mm. Well, sticking on that idea of there being things that happened before coronavirus suddenly hit us in late 2019, early 2020, that meant that changed the way in which we reacted to this pandemic. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because you wrote a book in 2000 called The Tyranny of Health, in which you looked at trends that were happening in the relationship between the medical world and the political world, specifically in relation to public health. In other way, in other areas, you've written about concepts like the worried well, um, the sort of damaging nature of the precautionary principle in the play between you know our medical lives and our social and political lives the term that's often used the culture of fear that has that has been promoted around people's sense of themselves their sense of their valuing of safety and particularly when it comes to health a kind of prioritization of health over all else the reason i bring that up is because obviously you know we've established that when you get hit with a novel virus your relationship to your health becomes very different than when you're walking down the street on an average day when there's not a global pandemic on but do any of those trends affect what's happening today or are any of them still relevant i was thinking about it in terms of what you were saying about compliance because in the blog on um, Medium that you wrote, I think you were, towards the beginning, sort of, I got the feeling that you were suggesting that there was a sort of a danger of an element of the boy who cried wolf in our response, in that if you've had a lead-up of decades of an attitude to public health, which is based on kind of alarmist claims, whether it be about, you know, the dangers of secondhand smoke, to campaigns around sugar tax, to the idea of, of us needing to micromanage our physical lives and our health as central to the way in which we organise society. But then you're also saying that people generally did comply and and actually as much as and I agree with you as much as some lockdown skeptics say you know there's a kind of national malaise going on and people are sort of falling apart from this anecdotally you can point to I can point to lots of of instances where people have just generally got on with it and there has been high levels of compliance so have those trends that you outlined back in 2000 and throughout the last 21 years sort of disappeared in the wake of the pandemic or are they having an effect how does the whole premise or idea of the culture of fear any of that play out today when we really have some Something to be afraid of. And one of the issues that emerged following the whole tyranny of health argument, which is about the way in which um, the health issues were politicised and the the sense of a in a society which had lost its way in terms of its wider vision of things, using health as a medium through communication to the public and the sort of dialectic between a government looking for sources of authority and people feeling rather atomized and preoccupied by issues of health was the main thing that was identified there. And one of the features that followed on from that was the sort of scaremongering in relation to health issues, which was a way of promoting what was regarded by the authorities as healthy behaviors in relation to all sorts 
sorts of areas of lifestyle and everything else. And scares of infectious disease then became a significant theme, and we've had a whole series of them. SARS, swine flu pandemic, the bird flu scare, Zika. There's been one along every year or two. And one of the features of all those scares is that great apocalyptic messages were issued for major World Health Organization type bodies of possible deaths in very large numbers, none of which actually came to pass. And so one of the points I think I made in that blog was to say that I noted this problem going back to the swine flu particularly, which had been hyped up and turned out to be relatively mild uh, illness in the end. And there was a whole warehouses full of drugs of dubious value and vaccines used on an enormous scale. So that created a bit of public cynicism about uh, this whole thing and a, and a sense of, and people made this point of the, the boy who cried wolf became a familiar theme, you know, that when the wolf comes along, people will not take notice of it. And of course, in a sense, that's what's happened with COVID because, and this is the main important difference here in relation to all these earlier, here we have a disease which is actually ha- has actually turned out in a very short period of time to be a really major threat. Or none of these others were. And that's a very important difference. And it, it hit in a very short period of time in an absolutely catastrophic way. And so the context in which you have to have this discussion, you say, well, what was the impact of the, the wider culture in, in relation to all this? And no doubt it, there is a sense of people are, have a perception of themselves as more vulnerable to infectious diseases and other unknown disease threats and they're more responsive to those kind of concerns. But here was a real disease. And I think one of the issues that I was concerned about in when COVID first came along, I was initially sceptical about it, in, given this history. And so when it became clear very quickly, particularly if you're a doctor and you're seeing people with it, it became clear to the wider public pretty quickly as well. This is a threat of a qualitatively different order and it requires a different response. And I think many people were slightly thrown by that. They would cling on to the claims that, oh no, it's not as bad as it, it, it was as I say almost echoing Boris and Trump saying no it's only the same as seasonal flu and then that argument has gone all the way through this controversy people have have constantly said on the one hand oh it is serious but on the other hand they want to say no actually it's not all that bad it's not as bad as seasonal flu we've had flu epidemics in the past we had one in 1957 we had one in 1968 nobody made a big deal about it particularly over the summer then people made this out when the cases numbers had dropped they say oh look the numbers of people dying from covid is now less than people dying of tb which actually became a bit silly in the end when you've had 50,000 people die in a month from covid you say then the curve suddenly the number of cases drops to a very tiny number. We say, well, it's not as high now as it was as a number of other things. I mean, that is silly, particularly when you're in a situation where the large majority of the population is still not immune to this disease, still vulnerable to it, and it's still out there, as it became immediately clear. Once you take the lid off, it exploded again. You know, that is the main difference, I think, between the whole context thing, is that it was not appropriate to argue that scaremongering was the, is the essence of the COVID phenomenon. The culture of fear is a real uh, set of issues. They are both real, but they are realities of an entirely different order. You know, here we have a major infectious disease which kills people by the tens of thousands on a quite unprecedented degree in all our lifetimes. That's one set of issues. The culture of fear is a very real set of issues. You might say nobody's died of the culture of fear. It's almost like people, nobody's died of false positive COVID tests, you know, which people used to claim that there is no real 
uh, increasing COVID. They're all getting false positive results. Then they all end up in hospital on ventilators, but they're not on ventilators because they've had a false positive result. The culture of fear is a real phenomenon and it has an important influence on people's lives and it has important influence on how people perceive the threat of a disease. But it is of a different order from the problem of COVID itself. The perception of COVID is refracted through the perception of greater vulnerability and the sense of existential insecurity. That has a significant bearing on it. But what are we going to do about this infectious disease that's killing people by the tens of thousands? And particularly when there are a very limited range of, of options to deal with it. It's all very well saying, yes, we've got to challenge this culture of fear and be courageous and be individually valiant in, in response to that. But, you know, what are we going to do about this disease? And particularly when the only things that we can do about this disease involve some restriction on our liberties. Because you've got to say, if you, if, you know, whatever we do, it's going to be one of these. There's nothing else, you know. You either got to have some sort of, of quarantine or some sort of track and trace or some sort of restriction or some sort of closure you know so what what of those is appropriate no good just saying be courageous and stand up for freedom that's not going to frighten the virus Mm. the difficult thing is we've had specifically in relation to brexit and the trends that happen there and you know discussions about the way in which european politics western politics operates in the 21st century there's been a whole kind of the idea of expertise has been called into question you know, for for good reasons, because of the nature of lots of political elites gaining their authority from trying to ground themselves as some idea of experts or relying on experts to kind of dissipate democracy. But then when you have a situation that we have now, the idea of an expert or the idea of expertise in a field, whether it be understanding the intricacies of how this pandemic is working and what this virus is doing, it, you know, becomes very important. And so then you, you have to have this balance between saying, well, the ordinary level person should have a say in what's happening because you know there are there are there are medical decisions to be made and then there are political implications for those medical decisions and all of that as you've said should be up for some level of democratic discussion in terms of how these things are implemented but then you do have to at some point say well as an expert who knows what they're talking about in this field this is what happens if you go for an option of herd immunity or this is what happens if you go for an option of lockdown and the difficult thing is if you're a critical if you're a skeptic of lockdown then you have to at some point say what practical things are you putting forward so what practically even though it's a painful question how many people are you saying it's okay to die of a month of a week of a year whatever it is what are your practical solutions for dealing with care homes you know all these things I can understand how that is difficult for people to get their heads around but one of the things I wanted to ask you was what are the implications for the way in which we deal with this pandemic for future political crises so the thing that I've been most nervous about is I can sort of see how the idea of a novel virus and a threat to society that's not sort of subject to the whims of you can't politically massage the virus you can't reason with it how that playoff between basically saying you have to listen to the science on this there is no way of kind of working your way out of it could be applied to for example alarmist environmentalists saying the planet is going to end it's a scientific issue it's a scientific reality and therefore we are going to have to have you know not lockdown restrictions but you're not allowed to drive cars anymore you're going to have to curtail your individual freedoms in order to deal with this real scientific threat i'm not trying to compare the virus with green environmentalism trends but if you set that precedent of there are some things that are more important than individual liberty there are some things that are more important than political freedom is there a way that you see of mitigating that continuing on? You know, that's just the nervousness of if this is what we accept has to happen now in these two years, what's to say that it won't be repeated? The logic of the pandemic will be repeated 
future pandemics or for future political you know, crises that get framed in this term of untouchable scientific reality? Well, one of the things I've learned from my actually now rather long-standing engagement in these scientific controversies, going back to HIV, AIDS, mad cow disease, CJD, all these other disease scares and everything else, is that you have to, and this is the, the, one of the, the legacies I've also learned from Marxism, is that you have to approach each, each thing in its specificity. Each one is a specific issue. You have to look at it in terms of the particular particularities of the threat in question and the social political context in which it takes place. So you can't generalise in the way I think you're seeking. I think that's been the problem with this controversy. People have applied a framework to the COVID thing, which emerged from the past in response to an entirely different situation. And that's led to a lot of people get, getting led astray here and found themselves lost in response to it. And I fear that's not a helpful way of doing it. You talk about expertise. I think one of the interesting features of the whole COVID thing is the relatively high quality of scientific debate and public involvement in it, by contrast with both the past and also by contrast with the quality of the political debate, I might say, in relation to the whole COVID controversy. But if you look, people have said, oh, there hasn't been much debate about COVID. I think it's been very impressive. One of the interesting things has been the contribution of social media to the discussion of COVID. In relation to HIV AIDS controversies, you know, there are all those Duesberg and Carrie Mullis, the so-called denialists who challenged the mainstream science and created a lot of confusion about the understanding of the science of HIV. It took years for them to be challenged. There was very little public access to it. Now the controversies right out in the open. People complain about SAGE. In the early days, SAGE membership wasn't disclosed and their minutes weren't available. Under pressure by May, they're all in the public domain. You can see that, read all the SAGE papers, you can, there's independent SAGE, they've got their, their, everybody's got their website, everybody can look at it, you can look at Unheard, you can hear Sunetra Gupta and Hennigan interviewed on, on endless different channels, TV, news media, alternative media. The quality of scientific debate has been very impressive and things come out from day to day. Here's claim, counterclaim, issues about the vaccines. I mean, the very production of the vaccine has been a great scientific triumph, it might be said, which was different from previous things. Are the vaccines effective in this situation? Are they effective in that situation? Everybody can look at all these papers. Science Media Centre churns out every day of the week the new reports that are published, indicating some of them are pre-print, some of them have been peer-reviewed, some of them haven't. Here are the comments of various authorities. You know, some of them say it's good, some of them say, take your pick. I found it extremely helpful and stimulating level of scientific controversy and debate about this. And it's been in the public domain, unheard. The Spectator published both sides of the of the argument. Talking about publishing all sides of the argument, one of the more depressing aspects of the response to the pandemic has been the, I wouldn't say astronomical, but significant rise of conspiratorial thinking. Um, characterised, and this is pertinent to your work, characterised by people like Wakefield turning back up on the scene, a man whose views on autism and the MMR jab, you have did a lot of work in the past to discredit someone who is a bit like... Um, I've forgotten his name. Who's the lizard guy? David Icke. David Icke, yes. <laughs> or people like David Icke, who, I mean, is a <laughs> kind of, to my mind, a figure of ridicule, and yet suddenly talking to not giant, but relatively large crowds in Parliament Square, although it is a very small minority of people who have those extreme views. And as it happens, I was quite nervous when we got the announcement of the vaccine in and around December or November, whenever it was uh, last year, 
I thought, oh God, here we go. There's going to be a row now with the anti-vaxxers and this is going to be a big problem and this is going to be a big trend. And thankfully, I'm very pleased about the fact that as it happens, most people are really celebratory of the vaccine coming in and there's been a really good response to it. There are challenges for certain communities and certain people or whatever. But in general, the thought that I had that there was going to be this massive sort of interest in anti-vaxxing hasn't materialised. But why has that kind of conspiratorial aspect come in? Does it link to trust and expertise being damaged are there things that maybe I or you or other people who are politically interested in talking about expertise in relation to democracy had a knock-on effect where you now are in a situation where lots of people don't trust anyone? Well, there's no doubt there's a lot of truth in that. But as you say, because of my prior engagement with the uh, MMR autism controversy, I've taken a great interest in the anti-vaccine issue. And it, it is, as you say, it's been greatly hyped up that the anti-vaxxers are going to cause a great... And as it turns out, it hasn't really been much of an issue. Although there is an issue of people have reservations about vaccine and, and it's important that they're dealt with. But I think in a way, what's been a more concerning issue is the clamour to have them all suppressed, which I'm, I've long argued against in relation to the MMR controversy, where people similarly sought to have various restrictions imposed on anti-vaccine propaganda which is a very unhelpful way of responding to it is an infringement on people's free speech but also completely impracticable and counterproductive because all it does is drive it underground and make people inclined to paranoia even more paranoid but you know as you say there is a, a, a decline in, in trust for all sorts of authorities that and a, there is a sort of climate of anxiety and insecurity generated around these sort of issues so that is a climate in which fake news and conspiracy theories flourishes no doubt there are malign agencies promoting them all those things are, are, are realities the most useful way of challenging them is just the, the oxygen of publicity and i think as you suggest around the issue of vaccination that's been generally good people see here is a disease that's killing a thousand people a day in the month of January in this country, here's a newly developed vaccine. You know, we'll go for it, particularly at a time when it's the only thing that seems to provide any glimmer of light at the end of a very long tunnel. And then, I mean, last question to you, Mike, and we're going to shove two questions into one, is what is the legacy of this period or how do we get out of this? Because the news of the vaccine coming in in winter 2020 is a godsend because you just thought, okay, this is our ticket out of this. And as long as the government can roll this out properly, you know, promises of getting all the elderly and vulnerable done in a certain time. And actually, it has to be said, I am not often a cheerleader for the government, but I think that the way they've dealt with uh, prioritising the vaccine rollout and being very focused on it, and even even someone like Matt Hancock, who's been quite impressive at times um, in his dealing with it, it was is a kind of great moment. You thought this is our ticket out but I suppose is it I mean there are technical questions about efficacy of the vaccine we've just seen a kind of unedifying battle between the European Union and Britain warring over the AstraZeneca jab putting those technical aspects aside I sort of wonder whether it is just a question of getting a shot in the arm and we're out of this or if there are longer considerations and particularly you mentioned when we started talking the idea of long COVID. I kind of can't get my head around long COVID. And there's been some suggestion that is it a real thing that, um, you know, has just real genuine physical implications in terms of, you know, an, a friend of mine is still kind of coughing despite being a young, healthy 29 year old um, having caught coronavirus. Is it, a, is it a real thing like that? Or is it a bit like ME or something like that, that it just kind of plagues people and there's, it's linked to a psychological approach to the virus? As well as that, is it the case that we're going to have to social distance and do all of that in the future? I mean, I have to admit that the idea of that makes me just want to opt out the whole thing. The idea that we would never get back to a situation where you would have normal life, as in not 
jumping off the street every time the person comes on the same side as you or not looking over your shoulder if someone's not wearing a mask or all of these things which even if we accept are physically necessary today if you have people like Jonathan Van Tam saying well these this might be this might be our future our future might not look the same what is the legacy of this and is will we just look back at it as a blip can we look back at it as a blip that we dealt with or is the idea of the new normal actually going to be <laughs> reality well, as um, Chuan Lai said, it's a bit early to say, you know, the, the, because we're very far from out of this yet. And I think that's very much the the people clinging on, obviously, understandably, to the hope of the vaccine, because it does provide a bit of hope that we can get out of it. But it's, there's a way to go yet. Just on the issue of long COVID, the, the two situations you describe are both real. You know, whether it's directly caused by the viral effect of the physical effect of the virus or is it some wider psychological uh, manifestation, they are both real issues and they are both potentially causes of very significant long term disease and disability. So I think it has to be that again, the, you know, that has to be followed very carefully and closely and studied to grasp what is really going on there and what the best thing, way of helping people with these problems are because clearly already is causing a very significant amount of illness. So that's the kind of direct physical effects, but but we're, we're still not over the, you know, we've got a, we may have reached a, a degree of immunity in certain areas. You know, in the area where I've been working in Stamford Hill with the Orthodox Jewish community recently reported a 64% level of, of antibodies, the price of the catastrophic first wave of infections there. One of the highest infection rates of infection in the world, I think, exceeded only by Manaus in Brazil. And that, I think, and that the similar high levels in other cities that have been badly affected suggest that we may be reaching some kind of a degree of herd immunity. They're not yet there. And hence the cautions of the public health people, I think legitimately, that if we unleash the restrictions completely, this infection could very easily flare up again and there is still a significant proportion of people who could get ill and die from it. So we're not out of it yet. And I think unquestionably, the economic and social impacts are going to carry on for a very long time to come. So yeah, this is not going to be something going to settle down and be regarded as a blip by any means. And the economic costs are going to be paid for a generation without without doubt. So, But I think the, the lesson I draw from it is that, you know, there has to be looked squarely in the face. I think one of the misfortunes of the whole sceptical approach has been to clinging on to pseudoscientific claims that, oh, it's not that bad. We've already, we're already out of it. Uh, and then fantasies like the Great Barrington Declaration uh, that uh, there's an easy solution, an easy way out of it and politicising a response to it in that way in a way of wishful thinking really that and hence its popularity everybody wishes it was true but it, it you know very rapidly became apparent to the to, that it just wasn't a practicable alternative to it and I think that's generated a lot of grief almost among people, you know, which is, you know, in the total circumstances, very understandable. You know, people are stuck at home. They can't work. They're isolated from their friends and families, struggling with kids, out of school, struggling, worrying about old people, can't visit the grandparents, grandparents can't look after the kids or even see the kids. You know, it's grim for so many people. And that's part of the response to the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah, that provides us, here's a glimmer of hope, then suddenly we'll know it. Actually, the, the second wave blows it out of the water. And here we are, a thousand people a day dying, you know, a year on in, in England. And, you know, one of the worst rates in the world, and similar in other Western countries. You know, it's a very depressing situation. And, you know, we aren't out of it yet. 
mercifully the rates are, are starting to go down and we are i mean i've been out in the vaccination clinic all the last few weeks and you know it's very heartening to see people coming in and getting their vaccination and how it gives them a, a bit of a sense of hope that we can get out of it but we've a way to go yet i'm afraid If you want to listen to all our podcasts, head to lobsterfilms.co.uk where you can also check out our political documentaries on things like feminism and Brexit. Follow us on SoundCloud, find us on YouTube and check us out.